0: I'm Scott Annual, and you're listening to By the Waters of Babylon, a podcast dedicated to discussion of Christianity in a post-Christian culture. In this episode, I'd like to spend some time talking about the biblical precedent of including all ages together in the corporate worship assemblies of God's people, and then spend some time talking about why, in much of evangelicalism today, children and youth are segregated from the adults in the corporate gatherings of the church. You may know that about a year ago I wrote a book called Let the Little Children Come, Family Worship on Sunday and the Other Six Days Too, in which I make the case that we ought to welcome all ages together in the corporate gatherings of the church. That book has been well received, and I encourage you to take a look at it. I provide a biblical case. I talk about the value of including all ages together and then the book also includes a lot of practical tips for parents who want to have their children in the corporate gatherings of the church, but also lots of resources and tips for family worship during the week as well, which is also critically important. There is no proof text in scripture that says, Thou shalt worship as families in church and home. But despite that, there's little doubt that the commonly accepted expectation and practice throughout biblical history, was to include children in the corporate worship gatherings of God's people. In the book, I make a theological and philosophical case for why we ought to do so as well. But just from the perspective of biblical precedent, what we find in scripture is that entire households came together for worship. In the Old Testament, for example, in the solemn assemblies of Israel's worship, Entire households gathered. When the people gathered to renew their covenant with God before they crossed the Jordan River into the Promised Land, in Deuteronomy chapter 31, Moses said, "'Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, "'and the sojourners within your towns, "'that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, "'and be careful to do all the words of this law,' and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. Clearly, there's an expectation here that all ages gather, specifically so that children who don't know the fear of the Lord will learn it. The same was true after the people conquered Ai on the other side of the Jordan River, They gathered to worship God in Joshua chapter 8, and we find there in verse 35, there was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them, meaning everyone. Everyone was there to hear Joshua read what Moses had written. Even within the law, God gave specific commands that when the people gathered for worship, they should do so as households. We see this, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 7 and 12, and Deuteronomy 16:11. And that precedent continued whenever the people gathered. For instance, if we look at Second Chronicles chapter 20, when King Jehoshaphat prayed on behalf of the people at the temple... We find there in verse 13, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. When the prophet Joel called the people to a solemn assembly of repentance, he commanded the people in Joel 2, verse 15, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. We often hear an objection. Well, infants can't understand. Here, the expectation was that Even nursing infants ought to be there. In a similar way, in Nehemiah chapter 12, after the people returned from exile and rebuilt Jerusalem and the temple, we find in verse 43, they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. I want to pause here for a moment because I've actually heard this context used as defense of segregating children. Earlier in Nehemiah chapter 8, we read So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. I have heard a pastor and seminary professor quote this verse to say, See, the only people who gathered together at this assembly were adult men and women and all who could understand. And he used this to defend the idea of segregating children from corporate worship. And I want to reply, well, where did the children go? Did did they go to the nursery? Did Ezra issue a call for nursery workers so that the children would be segregated? No, absolutely not. And later in chapter 12 of Nehemiah, as we just read, we see that all the women and children rejoiced also. It is God's desire That people gather for his praise, for confession of sin, that a solemn assemblies of worship gather not in groups divided by age demographics, but in a multi-generational context. Psalm 148 verse 12 says, Young men and maidens together, old men and children. There is nothing more beautiful than to see multi-generations gathering together for corporate worship. And nothing changes for the New Testament church. Whole families came together when churches gathered. One example of this is in the book of Acts, when Eutychus, a boy who was listening to Paul preaching in a service in Troas late into the night, fell asleep and fell out of a third-story window. We read this in Acts chapter 20. Here was a young boy who was there late into the night. This is a defense for even including children in evening services young children were present at the gatherings of God's people. When Paul wrote instructions to children in his letters to the churches of Ephesus and Colossae, in Ephesians chapter 6 and Colossians chapter 3, these were letters that he intended to be read aloud in church gatherings, he clearly assumed that children would be there, part of the congregation, ready to listen to his specific instructions to them. You see, nowhere in Scripture either in the Old Testament or the New Testament, is there ever even a hint of some kind of age segregation in the context of gatherings of God's people? And this practice of churches welcoming children into corporate worship gatherings continued in the early church and on into the Middle Ages. The case I'm making here is that the idea of segregation is a relatively recent innovation. Very early in the church's development, Christians established a system in which children, as well as other unsaved adults who were inquiring into Christianity, were catechized in the doctrines and moral expectations of Scripture. One of the earliest examples of this is found in a document called the Didache, the Teaching. This was a first century sort of church manual. Many churches today have new member classes or baptism classes, and they might put together a little booklet that instructs the new members or the new converts in the faith and in Christian living. Well, that's exactly what the Didache was. Newly catechized converts would be taught and then would be baptized and welcomed into communion with the local church. A similar 3rd century manual called the Apostolic Tradition, which was based off the Didache but was more extensive, indicated that catechesis should last as long as three years before a new convert could be baptized and join the church, and this included often young children. But part of the process of catechization was welcoming the catechumens into the service. They didn't bar them from the service just because they were not yet baptized. And these catechumens would hear the scriptures read and taught. Early Christians knew that regular exposure to the worship of God's people where the word of God was prominent was essential to leading their children to faith in Christ. What can be more evangelistic than having our children be part of the corporate gatherings of the local church? In the Middle Ages, the practice of infant baptism rose where baptized infants were considered official members of the worshiping community even before catechesis or profession of faith. And that practice then provided an additional basis for including children in corporate worship. Now, I'm a Baptist, and I don't believe it is right to baptize infants, but this was another reason that developed for including infants and young children within the corporate gatherings. However, it would be a mistake to assume that that was the only reason children were gathering. They weren't just welcome into corporate worship because they had been baptized. There are a lot of books written today by Presbyterians about welcoming children into corporate worship, and they do so on the basis of the fact that these are baptized members of the church. And, of course, that makes sense in that theological context. But as we've seen, that's not the only reason that children ought to be welcome into the local gatherings of the church, even apart from infant baptism. The same documents like the Didache and the Apostolic Tradition that describe the established process of catechesis also describe the involvement, as I mentioned, of these catechumens in corporate worship. Part of the catechetical process was faithful attendance and corporate worship where these catechumens, these unsaved children who were learning about the faith or in some cases new converts who were being taught before baptism would hear the word of God read and preached. They would witness the confession of sin and the assurance of pardon in Christ. They would hear and in some cases participate in the psalms and hymns of the Christian faith. These unbaptized children were not permitted to participate in the Lord's Supper. That was the service of the faithful, but they were welcomed into the first part of the service that was called often the service of the catechumens. This practice continued all the way through the 18th century. Martin Luther stated on one occasion that when he preached, He did not seek primarily to preach to the highly educated in his congregation, but rather he sought to preach to his little children. In a similar way, Ulrich Zwingli and John Calvin continued to welcome children into worship, of course indicated by the fact that they considered baptized children to be part of the covenant community, and so they necessarily welcomed the children into church gatherings. But again, even churches that came to defend believer baptism and restricted church membership only to those who had been baptized after conversion, like Baptists and Anabaptists, nevertheless continued to welcome unregenerate children in the corporate worship gatherings. They knew that the regular preaching and teaching of God's Word, combined with observation and even participation in some aspects of corporate worship, although not the table, was the best way for children to come to their own personal knowledge of Christ. The English Puritans continued this. They recognized the importance of welcoming children in corporate worship. One pastor's wife in Boston in 1816 wrote in a letter, I begin to have my children in the room at prayers within the month after their birth, and they always continue to be present unless they are sick, or, notice this, are excluded the privilege as a punishment for having been very naughty. It is difficult when they are quite young to keep them perfectly still. So we can see that children were welcomed all the way up through the 19th century. So what changed then? If biblical and historic precedent has been to welcome children in the primary gatherings of the church as the central means by which they come to know God and love Him and obey Him— why do many churches today create age-segregated teaching and worship programs? Well, there were several developments in the 19th century that radically changed the way Christians viewed children and thus altered the well-established model of including children in the corporate worship gatherings of the church. Part of the shift that occurred in how churches viewed the evangelization and discipleship of their children took place with the creation of Sunday schools in the late 18th century. Sunday schools began simply as a means to educate factory children who were unable to attend schools, and their early objective was simply to teach children to read the Bible. They were most often held on Sunday afternoons, the only day factories were closed, and so the only day factory children could attend. But it wasn't long before their purpose shifted to broader religious education. Originally, these meetings were not held at the same time as the regular church gatherings, but they did begin to shift Christians' views regarding the best way to disciple children. And then by the early 19th century, Sunday schools shifted from educating unchurched children to training children of Christian parents as well. And this might have been originally grounded on noble motives, but the underlying philosophy was impacted by secular philosophies that considered segregated education as the best way to educate children. Things were shifting in the secular education realm, and that began to influence how even Christians viewed the education of their children. Some Christian leaders objected to this. They objected to segregating children into separate Sunday schools. For instance, Thomas Burns, a Scottish pastor in 1798, said, My great objection to Sunday schools is that I am afraid they will in the end destroy all family religion, and whatever has tendency to do this, I consider it is my duty to guard you against. I might also show that these schools are hurtful to public religion, for it consists with my knowledge that children stay at home from church to prepare their questions for the event and their families are divided when they ought to be together. So what he's saying is that the Sunday schools, although with noble intentions, destroyed family worship at home because parents assumed their children were being taught at church in Sunday school and also destroyed children's involvement in the public worship of the church. And so certainly well-intentioned, Sunday schools began the separation of children from their parents and the primary church gatherings. But then second, the revival movement led by Charles Finney in the mid-19th century changed how churches viewed the discipleship of their children even more profoundly. Charles Finney taught that both conversion and spiritual growth could be replicated through what he called the right use of appropriate means— He taught that to affect change in people, religious meetings needed to be fresh and exciting, and he rejected outdated traditions, what he assumed to be outdated traditions, and he advocated the accommodation to constantly changing expectations of the dominant culture. Finney's philosophy affected evangelical churches across the board, including how churches evangelized, how they discipled converts, and how they worshiped. And so it's not surprising that these philosophical and methodological changes trickled down into views concerning the evangelization and discipleship of children as well. For children to be converted, the assumption became they need to be convinced of the gospel through engaging means, and since the quote-unquote adult service isn't at quote-unquote their level, Churches need to offer programs and bring children to faith and interest them in the things of the Lord at their own level. Well, alongside these two religious movements, fundamental changes in philosophy of education, as I've already alluded to, contributed to this shift in the way Christian families and churches view the discipleship of their children. In the mid-19th century, around the same time that Charles Finney was revolutionizing theology of conversion and spiritual growth, education philosopher Horace Mann was arguing for similar philosophies in the realm of public education. Mann argued for the systematization of education in which students were grouped into peer groups of similar ages and locked into fixed learning paces. This was never the case before in the education of children. And then later, Granville Stanley Hall, who was a Darwinian evolutionist, had a significant impact on the dominant education philosophy of the day, Hall taught that children evolve from a primitive stage to a more enlightened stage, which mirrored the evolutionary stages of humankind. And so children must be, Hall argued, educated apart from their parents. Because if they aren't, their development will be hindered. They need to evolve beyond their parents. And that philosophy was applied by the man who's known as the father of modern public education, John Dewey, who further argued that parents were incapable of educating their own children. And so the public school system, not the home, was considered ultimately responsible for the instruction of the next generation. These are secular ideologies, but it wasn't long before Christians began to accept and adopt that underlying philosophy of education. Christians, of course, initially rejected the Darwinian foundation of this philosophy— But they very quickly, nevertheless, bought into those secular ideologies and the idea that experts were better equipped to educate children than their parents. And then even worse, this philosophy began to make its way into churches and impacted philosophy and practice of the discipleship of children. And so the growth of the public education system with its graded structure of peer groups, which again is a secular novelty— exacerbated the shift in church education philosophy. Since children and youth were accustomed to spending most of their time in peer groups at school away from their parents and other adults except for quote-unquote expert teachers, on Sunday they no longer wanted to be part of intergenerational church gatherings. And then, of course, secular entrepreneurs wanted to make money off that. So they created sales markets based on increasingly fragmented age and social demographics, which then only increased divisions between generations within churches. And so it was within this environment, both within the church and outside the church, from which programs grew like modern Sunday schools, church education hours for children often substituting for the regular spiritual discipleship in the home, And what's sometimes called children's church, a meeting for children during the regular quote unquote adult service. Some churches, of course, have even created gatherings and substitute services for teenagers, not expecting integration into the larger body until after graduation from high school, if even then. I don't question the motives of parents or church leaders who favor these kinds of programs. Most often they advocate for them because they truly believe that their children will be evangelized and discipled best when expert teachers using quote-unquote kid-friendly methods will instruct the children quote-unquote at their level. But all of these assumptions are based on secular non-biblical ideologies. And well-meaning parents and pastors also often advocate for removing children from corporate worship out of fear that children will be a distraction to the evangelization of unbelievers in attendance and to the spiritual growth of the adult Christians in the congregation. Yet what I believe these well-meaning Christians fail to recognize is that their programs actually hinder the spiritual growth of children, and work against the very goals that they are trying to accomplish. Again, because they are based on not biblical theology, but secular Darwinian evolutionary ideologies. This whole shift within the church, as Thomas Burns warned all the way back in 1798, is also what has contributed to the neglect of family worship, even in the home the other days of the week. As early as the late 19th century, Charles Spurgeon already noticed the problem. He said, Brethren, I wish it were more common. I wish it were universal with all professors of religion to have family prayer. We sometimes hear of children of Christian parents who do not grow up in the fear of God. And we are asked how it is that they turn out so badly. In many, very many cases... I fear there is such a neglect of family worship that it's not probable that the children are at all impressed by any piety supposed to be possessed by their parents. But once again, the biblical precedent is clear. Throughout scripture, fathers in particular gave careful attention to the spiritual instruction of their children. In fact, during the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, cultivation of their relationship with God took place exclusively in the family. God specifically chose Abraham, as we find in Genesis 18, so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Abraham led his family in that way as indicated by the fact that when he took Isaac to the mountain to sacrifice him at the command of God, Isaac inquired as to where the lamb for the sacrifice was. Clearly, Isaac was familiar with the practice of sacrifice. Isaac continued this with his family. Jacob, the patriarchs of Israel, passed down biblical faithfulness through the family. And even once God formed the nation of Israel and gave them his law, where he instituted corporate worship times for the people, children were still instructed in the truths of God primarily by their parents. As we've seen, they were welcomed in the solemn assemblies of worship, but those were rare. Children were taught by their parents. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, right after the Shema, the command to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, we find these words in verse 6. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. These were not instructions concerning corporate worship. These were a means for passing on the knowledge of God in the daily practices within the family. Clearly, this involved more than just focused, dedicated times of family worship. Bringing up children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord should encompass all of family life. But dedicating a focused time for scripture reading, for singing, for prayer, set a pattern and provided a basis for consistent spiritual nurturing of children. And in a similar way, in the New Testament epistles, we find instructions regarding relationships within the family. The fact that Paul addresses parents and children, again, is an indication that children were welcome in the gatherings of the church, but the instructions themselves help us to understand parents' responsibility for their children during the other six days of the week. Consider what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. "...fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord." Similar to the command given to parents following the Shema, Paul's exhortation here involves both the common everyday activities of the home and regular focused times of family worship. Parents are supposed to regularly instruct their children and cultivate disciplines that will accomplish the mission of the discipleship of their children, nurturing knowledge of God, love for him, and obedience to what he commands. So what changed? When did parents forget their responsibility to bring up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord every day of the week? When did families stop worshiping together at home? Again, I believe the shift arose hand-in-hand with the problem of churches segregating children into special discipleship programs. As those secular philosophical changes in the broader culture influenced Christians to believe that quote-unquote trained experts were better equipped to educate children than their parents, resulting in elaborate children's programs at church that segregated children into what they believed to be age-appropriate peer groups separate from the rest of the congregation, parents began to buy in. Look at all that our children are learning at church, parents would observe they're having so much fun they love going to church surely these engaging programs with skilled teachers and fun games and creative techniques for teaching the bible are better than making kids sit through boring services with stodgy hymns and a 40-minute sermon and parents began to believe that they couldn't compete at home with the kinds of exciting things that children were getting at church and why even try their children love church. They love learning about the Bible in fun ways. Why would we need to do anything more at home? Yet the precedent is clear. From the earliest times until fairly recently in church history, parents were expected to nurture their children's spiritual growth at home and centrally in the context of multi-generational church gatherings. It was only after secular philosophies of education rose in prominence Combined with the Sunday School movement and theological changes in the wake of the Second Great Awakening, that churches began to segregate children from their parents in child-centered gatherings, and parents began to depend on those children's meetings as the primary means through which their children were taught the things of God. The biblical precedent is clear: Let the little children come. We must reject secular ideologies and trust in the sufficiency of scripture. Let us rear our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Let us teach them to know God, love God, and obey God, both in the corporate gatherings of the church and in everyday practices and family worship in our homes. Thank you for listening to By the Waters of Babylon. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or other podcasting services. And if you enjoy this podcast, please give it a rating. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash I blog at g3min.org. And for articles, audio, and speaking itinerary, visit scottannual.com. Join me next time as we discuss issues related to Christianity in a post-Christian culture.